Well, it's a great delight to be here again at the Church of God of Licking County. I was thinking coming up the road that I think I've probably spent, I'm estimating here, at least nine months of my life in Newark, Ohio, and I've never owned property here. And, you know, you, you got to go back, you know, we were coming to three camp meetings a year in Newark for when I was a kid, and then, you know, it's just been a lot of travel uh, here uh, for many years. I know we had camp meeting at, uh, was it Westerville? No, that wasn't in Newark, but... Um, uh, so you ought to feel flattered. I like coming here. And uh, I'm always invited, uh, or always joyful to be invited. Um, Brother Iran, thank you for that welcome. And Brother uh, Epperson, Sister Bobby, thank you for staying. You didn't have to stay. Um, I'm glad you did. <laughs> it's good to see you. I, I got here around 4.30. Your pastor cooked a real Italian meal for us, and that was beautiful. And then we had wonderful pies from Sister Lane. And uh, wow, wow. Where's, Mika where's Michaela at? Can you cook like your grandmother? Can you? If you can cook like your grandmother, you can get a guy and not even have to be nice. <laughs> so you can cook like your grandpa. Grandmother. Your grandpa. Well, there you have it, fellas. <laughs> I, 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 want to, I want to speak to you tonight on a subject that is really a burden on my heart, and I'm, I'm going to get to Scripture, but it's going to be at the end, so I don't want you to confuse my sermon and, and say, boy, he's gone 30 minutes and he hasn't read anything yet, and this is going to be a really long sermon if his introduction ran that long. I don't want you to think that, but I do want to share with you some things that have been on my heart, and I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but what I want to speak to you about uh, tonight and then tomorrow night uh, is uh, something that has been on my heart certainly over the past few months, numerous times a week. It's something that I often wake up thinking about. It's something that near the end of the day I'm still considering. And so I want to try to get it off my heart and into your heart. And the subject that I want to deal with tonight is why uh, or, or, or the kind of church that you and I ought to be building for the future to leave our children to. Now, I, I want to preach to people primarily of, of my age range. Primarily, if you have children or youth in the, in the programs here, if you have that age of children, I want to speak to you primarily, but, but I want to speak to, er, to everyone generally. Uh, because, again, you are now of that age. If, if you have children, and particularly teenagers, you are now of that age where I think you have to think about the kind of church that you are purposely, intentionally helping to build to pass to the next generation. I'm in my 40s, and, and as we've talked about before, you know, if you divide life up into 20-year segments, first 20 years, summer, second 20, or first 20 years, spring, second, summer, third 20 years, fall, fourth, winter, after that, you're just waiting for the grim reaper. I, I, no, I'm joking. You get, you're youthful, don't even think about it. It's a long way away, don't even think about it. But... Uh, 
but, 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 but I'm, I'm in, I don't feel that way, but I'm in my 40s, which means I'm in the August of my life. Summer has already passed, if you think about it that way. Uh, and you know summer's passed, how? Because the leaves start changing or falling out, right? That's how, falling off, that's, that's how you know. You, you may not want to consider it, but fall is here when the leaves start changing. And, and so it's important, particularly when you're of this age, to really start thinking about the kind of church that we are going to leave to the next generation. Because now the shape of the church is really dominated by that middle generation. It, it, it really is to a great extent. Now, as I think about that, and this is why I think it will take two nights, as I think about that, I, I'm not sure that everybody who even goes to a church particularly cares what they're leaving to the next generation. I'm not sure that there is that level of concern. I'm not sure that there would be any intentionality. I'm not sure that a lot of people who would go to church anywhere in America on a Sunday morning particularly thinks about what the next generation will receive as their spiritual inheritance. They probably think some about what they're going to give their children financially, but there's very little thought about what they'll pass on to their children as far as a spiritual legacy, what kind of house they'll leave behind. And we see that happening in America. There were some statistics that came out in 2020 pre-COVID, and uh, it, it, the, the, the study was alarming because it found that in the year 2000, Again, statistics, Mark Twain had a statement about statistics that wasn't flattering, but, but uh, he, he said, uh, uh, not Mark Twain, but, but this, this writer said that in, 20, in 2000, the average size of the congregations, were the mean was 137 people on Sunday morning. And in 2020, the mean, the middle point, was 65 so there had been at least a 50% decline. Now, for a generation from the 40s into the 80s, uh, every study that was done uh, of a significant nature said that on any given Sunday, there was 40 to 45% of the American population in a church service. And then they started looking at those numbers and found out about 40% of people lie if you ask them if they went to church. And so it wasn't quite that by about 1990. But, but any, way, any way you cut it, if you have about 350,000 churches in America. Now, I have a public education, so I'm, I'm not very good at math. But, but if you do 350,000 churches in America, our population is about 330 million legal you might throw in some more. You might say we're closer to 350 million. So you have 350,000 churches, 350 million roughly population. If the average, now the mean is the midway point, if the mean is 65, if the average number of people in a church on Sunday was 100, that's 35 million people. That's 10%. If there's 150 people 
in the average church on a Sunday morning, which would be a hard case to make if the mean is 65. That's about 50 million. That's about 14 to 15%. If you're pessimistic, it's 10%. The most optimistic you can say is it's 15%. And 30 years ago, it was 40%. What that means is that in a generation, church attendance has fallen 60 to 75% in just 30 years in America, which would be probably the largest spiritual decline in the history of our nation. It's not a recession, it's a depression. And so, again, I'm not so sure that people really care if there's a church for the next generation. It seems like people voting with their feet, 85% of Americans don't care if there's a church in 30 years. And I'm not sure how many people in the church care if there's a church in 30 years, to be quite honest. Um, you say, well, how did this decline happen? And I, I think there, there's a... There's a lot of blame to go in a lot of different ways, and you could probably come up with a sizable list of how at least the American church has, has blundered and failed in multiple ways. I know as a pastor, I wish I could go back and make some decisions differently. But, but I think that at the top of that list is probably, and again, this isn't anything scientific, and your opinion's as good as mine on this particular issue, I think, I think that the consumerism in America was part of it, and this is the most consumeristic generation in the history of the world. And I also think that the church's response to try to feed the consumerism was another part of it. Sort of the church and the world were in a... Johnny Depp, Amber Heard relationship, <laughs> put it that way. It's very dysfunctional <laughs> because basically we got into a very, um, very uh, seeker-sensitive model. A lot of churches did, and we we tried to feed the consumerism. So we did the padded pews, and of course the air condition had to be there. And, Everything had to be comfortable, and then, then we had to get the coffee, and then we had to do the scheduling ride, and we had to tailor the music, and we had to put people in the parking lot. And, and, and we've really tried to accommodate the consumerism. But the problem is, is that not everything you feed eats you. But consumerism will eat you. So it's been a very dysfunctional thing. We've tried to feed the consumerism and give them what they want, and in response, they've demanded that we give them more of what they want, and I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can give. I mean, the church isn't Apple. We can't come up with a new church every year. We can't come up with a new phone. And so now we're in this process, and I think this is a part of where we're at, where the demands continue to come, and now it's online, now it's DoorDash Church. We want to sit at home and watch it and have you deliver it to us. The pews weren't comfortable enough. 
we got a my pillow and a Tempur-Pedic, and so that's where we want it. And the question is, is how much more can we feed it because it's eating us alive? I mean, if, if you want to understand consumerism in America, one word for you, mattresses. Let's think about that. And I'm not against buying mattresses. I bought a new one last year. That's not the point. But, but, but think about it. I, I, was, I heard a guy say, where did people buy mattresses 50 years ago? And he said, I don't know, and does anybody know? And nobody in the room knew. And I got to thinking, so I asked my mom, where did you buy mattresses 50, 50 years ago? Sears, or where did you buy them at? She said, I don't remember where you buy them. Where did you buy a mattress 50 years ago? But the point is, is there's probably 10 to 15 stores in Newark that make their primary income just selling mattresses. And so, for the history of the world and for half the world now as it exists, and basically all the world up to 100 years ago, when you think about the needs that they focused on and where they lived their life, what were those needs? Safety? Clean water? Food? Some measure of health care? Housing? Clothing would be in the top six, maybe... Seven, eight, nine might be um, sanitation. Uh, heat in the winter would be on that list, but it wouldn't be in the top five. Indoor plumbing was nice, but that's a luxury. That wouldn't be in the top eight. Transportation, maybe education. And that's where half the world lives. And in America, we're looking for the perfect Sleep number. That's where we're at. We don't worry about all that stuff. It doesn't even cross our mind, a lot of us. But we got to have the perfect, not, 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 not a bed in a safe house, not a bed in air condition, not a bed. It's got to be the perfect. It's got to be the perfect gap between softness and hardness. That's where we are. So that's where consumerism is. And it's eating the church alive. To a great degree. So I think that's part of it. And consumerism isn't going to die in America. It's here to stay. So here's the question again, we've had a 60 to 75 percent decline in people showing up at church in a generation. Do you think it's going to get better? Because in the next 30 years, all the stuff that's created the decline will still remain. Added to that will be online streaming. And nobody thinks that's going to help people actually get to church. We all knew online streaming was coming because that's the way the world was going. Every meaningful human interaction 
was being replaced by something online. People used to go to malls, you got Amazon. People used to date, now they do online dating. Every university in the world, when they advertise, will say, learn from the comfort of your home. You can learn online, you can shop online, you can date online. Now, I got a friend named Jerry who says, yeah, you can meet them online and you can date online, but when you get married, you got to move in together. So hopefully that's the way the church will be. But will, will it be more like online dating where you end up moving in together will, or will it be like online shopping? That's yet to be determined. And then, so you have all of this happening, and then we have the big issue, which is the shortage of pastors. That's going to be another huge problem. I went to Anderson Seminary. I was telling the Uppersons. When I was in Anderson 20 years ago, there was 80 to 100 students in the seminary. Today, I heard two numbers, but this counted online attendance. There was 10 to 15 students in the seminary. Um, I, I preached a camp meeting in Virginia. There's 12 churches there and four are without pastors. In North Carolina, where I used to pastor, there were six churches, and three of those are without pastors right now. And if you take out every pastor between the age of 60 and 80, which you're going to have to do, you, you're going to have a you might have half the churches in America without pastors before it's over in the next 30 years. So, it's already fallen this much. The next 30 years could be as bad as the last 30 if 10 to 15% of Americans are in church today. Could it be 5 to 8% in 30 years? And then you have to ask the question, Will they be in a Bible-believing church? Because if 10 to 15% of Americans are in church today, half the Methodists, most of the Presbyterians, Catholic, I mean, you get how many of those are in a Bible-believing church right now? See, and this is the, one of the things that frustrates pastors nuts, makes us nuts because it feels like you're on the Titanic and they're still arguing about what the band is playing as the thing's going down. They're still arguing about where the chairs go and what we're going to do there. And it's like, we're in a major depression and the next 30 years, there's no reason to believe outside of a great move of God that we're not going to 5% of church members in the next 30 years. We're going to European levels at this rate, quickly. And so what I'm trying to tell you is, people of my age, if you want a church for your children, you better get on board now. Now's the time. I know you're busy. I know your kids have sports. I know you got careers. I know you got lots of things. But if you want to leave a legacy, you better get on board now because this is halftime. 30 years have passed. The next generation is coming, and we're losing big time. America. I think that you ought to be concerned about what you leave your children. I think if you have children, at the top of the list of to-do ought to be 
we need to leave them a thriving church. We, we got to leave them a thriving. We have to leave them a house of God. We got to leave them a place where they can feel the presence of God regardless of whatever else we accomplish. I know the wind's blowing in our direction. I know it's a hurricane out there. But somehow, some way, we got to leave them a ship of Zion that's going to sail in the storm, whatever it may be. I think we ought to do that first of all. For no other reason than that it matters to Jesus. The church, listen, the church matters to Jesus. Luke 4.16 says that it was Jesus' custom to be in church on the Sabbath. And, And if you want to pity anybody, pity the poor rabbi who had to get up and preach with Jesus in the audience. That, you want to talk about some pressure, that really stunk. But, but he was in the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And when he was on earth, he wasn't just healing and saving and teaching, but he was building a group of people. He starts with 12. By the time he has resurrected, there's 120 in the upper room. The Holy Spirit is sent, and the job of the Spirit, among other things, is to build that community. So 3,000 are saved on the day of Pentecost. They're all together in one accord, in one place by the end of Acts chapter 2. And then by the end of Acts, the church has grown to an innumerable number of believers. Jesus cares about the church. Acts 20, 28 says that he gave his blood, he died on the cross to purchase the church. He had the church in mind when he was on the cross. If you love Jesus, you ought to love what he loved, and he loved the church. If you care about Jesus, you ought to care about what Jesus cared about, and you ought to care about the church. You ought to do it for Jesus' sake. You know what? You ought to do it, secondly, for the nation's sake. Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson, who was our president many years ago, was a great historian before he got elected president. And one of the things that bothered or interested, I should say, Wilson was how France and England were so much alike at the end of the uh, 18th century, and yet one blew up and one survived. Uh, when you looked at France at the, you know, in the 1780s, 1790s, Uh, France was in a place of financial bankruptcy. France, uh, the the, the morale was very, very low, and you had the starvation riots. Um, France was morally a nation gone under. I mean, we get uptight about our presidents having affairs, and we should, but, I mean, the kings of France had their Madame Pompadours and, and all the rest. They just had a harem living there, and everybody accepted it. I mean, morally, it was, it was a horrendous place. And then, not only that, the, the, the morale of the people, again, was very, very low. And religiously, uh, the Catholic Church was dominant, but the Catholic Church was dead. So in France, at, at that time, there wasn't any reason to believe it was going to survive. Financially bankrupt, morally bankrupt, morale was low, the church was of no help at all. In England, you had... A picture of it, and England was 20 miles from France. In England, they were going bankrupt because of the wars in America, and their morale was long because 
because George III was crazy. They had a nut for a president, a uh, uh, king. We could have sympathized with some of that, but they had a nut for a king, and, uh, and, and they had no reason to believe uh, that, that, that anything good was going to happen there. And then um, morally, morally the nation was terrible. They were still uh, actively engaged in, in the slave trade up to their necks. It was a terrible situation morally in the life of that nation. And then the church, you had the Church of England, and, and they were as corrupt and ineffective as the Catholic Church in France. They were mirrors of each other. And France blew up. But England survived. And Woodrow Wilson, great mind, said the single reason why England survived and France blew up was John Wesley. John Wesley. He said, John Wesley, this preacher, began to preach in the field, and he, he was concerned about the holiness of the nation, holiness of the Church of, of England. And he began to preach, and he was, of course, the father of Methodism, although I don't think he'd claim it today. <laughs> and I don't think that he wanted to be the father of any denomination. But, but Wesley and preaching on holiness... It, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough salt in England to keep it from spoiling. It, it, there weren't a lot that joined Wesley, but there was enough. There was a church that worshipped in fields and houses and behind barns, and, and they gathered together. They embraced the message of holiness. There was enough of them to save a nation. And a church can do that. Doesn't take everybody. But if enough of the people who love Jesus will join together, will be fervent in their worship, will be fervent in their fellowship, there might be enough people to save a nation on the brink of destruction. You ought to care about the church if you care about the nation. Perhaps the single greatest patriotic thing you can do if you care about the nation is to care about the church. Maybe the greatest thing you can do. And then third, as I've mentioned, you ought to care about the church because Jesus cared about the church because wrapped up in our concern for the nation is our concern for the church. This is the salt but third, you ought to care about the church, as I've mentioned before, because it's important to your children. It's important to your children. Your children need a place to come to. Even if they leave the church and go out into the world, they need a home to come back to. What would have happened to the prodigal son if they'd have sold the farm and left when he left, and when he got back, there wasn't anything left. That the prodigal son needed a place to come to. It was important. And the church is the house of God. And at the front of the house of God is a father who wants his wayward children back. But inside the house ought to be elder brothers who, who have stayed who have stayed on the farm, who have made sure that the house has remained in order. And so when the younger sons come back, here we are with the father welcoming them home. 
you got to have a place for them to come to. I remember my dad, and it's one of the few conversations that I, I remember him having when he was, uh, well, I must have been nine or ten. He was talking to a, a, a fellow pastor who had grown uh, very discontent with the church, and uh, this fellow pastor was saying, you know what, we've been so hurt by the church that now me and my wife and my children on Sunday morning, we get up and we watch Charles Stanley on TV and we have worship and, and we, we sort of have our own little house church. And so that's what we're doing. And I remember my dad asking the question, which is, I think was an important question, which was, what's going to happen when you're dead and gone? Who are they going to be connected to? Who are you connecting your children with? What happens when you're gone? What happens when they move out? They're not connected to anybody or anything. And that's important. You know, when you and I come to church, when we feel like it or not, we're demonstrating to our children that church is important, that it's the place we go to. That's very important. Because you and I are teaching our children we're, one of the things we're teaching them without telling them is what to do when life gets difficult. Amen. And some people are teaching them that when life gets really hard, you go home and you drink a beer. They're not saying that, but that's what the kids are seeing. On a tough day, you go home, you smoke a cigarette, you drink a beer. That's how you handle tough days. Some people are teaching them that the way you handle a tough day is you go home, you get your credit card, and you go spend until you feel better. And that's how you handle difficulty. One of the things we have to be conscious about, I think, is to teach our children that we go to God, we go to church. That's where we take our problems. Where we take our problems. Because, and listen, it's important that it's important to us. Listen. Leaving your children a spiritual legacy is more important than, listen, it's more important than them being a good athlete. It's more important than sports. It is. It is. It's more important than your career. It's more important than your hobbies. You've got to leave them a spiritual inheritance and everything in the culture says that this is going to be difficult, so we have to be resolved to do it. And then fourth, it's important to Jesus, it's important, it's important to the nation, it's important to our families. But listen, church and leaving a church for the future, having one for the future is important for you and I too. It's important for you and I. You know, the Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 10, it, it talks about not forsaking the assembling of yourself together and so much more as you see the day approaching. And then Hebrews chapter 3 talks about how we ought to uh, spur each other on to good works. And uh, I'm not going to get it right, but, but it says something to the effect of lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We, we are to encourage each other daily, lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's just a powerful passage. It says, if you aren't talking to each other and encouraging each other daily, you could be hardened by sin, which is very deceitful. There's a deceit that comes with sin. 
You've you got to have a body of believers if you're going to be the person God wants you to be. It, because even if you're living above sin, and I hope you are, that's not the only thing we deal with. We also not only have temptations to sin, but we also have temptations to wander. I think that's one of the reasons why the Bible calls us sheep. Sheep just chase one tuft of grass after another till they look up and they're not where they should be. And you've got to have people pulling you back. And there is a tendency in maybe more people than would admit it to, to, to even though I'm not rebelling against God, I'm wondering. I'm just getting into things. That, that uh, it's not sin, it's wondering. But it's wrong. Sometimes there's sin, sometimes there's wondering, sometimes there's wasting, you know? And the guy wastes his talents. You've got to put yourself among people that will look at you and say, you're gifted, you have a lot to offer God that you haven't offered him yet. Get in that choir. Get in the class. You're wasting your gifting. You're wondering. You're too involved in things that don't have eternal value. Maybe, yeah, maybe even also you're sinning. Where do you get that? You don't get it at the club. You don't even get it usually from your family. You got to get that in the family of God. So not only do we need the body of Christ for ourselves. You know what the Bible says? Bible, I think, says that if you want everything God wants for you, you have to be willing to show up at public worship. There are some things that happen when two and three are gathered together that don't happen when you're home alone. You know, I've been in worship services that were powerful, and the Spirit was moving, and it was a blessing. And then I bought the CD of that service. It's not the same thing. The Spirit isn't attached to the CD. The spirit was in the room, and if you weren't in the room that night, you don't get it. You don't get it. I love this place in Psalm 73, and as you've been praying for me to quit, and now I'm coming in, I'm bringing my plane in for a landing here. I love Psalm 73 because it starts with a man, Asaph, who says that my feet almost slipped. I almost fell. He said, I was smart. I didn't tell everybody about it because I was the lead song leader in the church. He said, but as for me, my feet almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the unrighteous. And then he starts to list how the unrighteous were far more prosperous than him. Their kids never went to the doctor and his kids were always down at the doctor. They had wealth. He didn't have wealth. He worked as hard as they did, but he didn't have anything. Uh, 
it seemed like in every area that mattered to him, they were blessed and he wasn't. And from what I can take it, he was a stay-at-home Christian. I mean, he was there watching the service online, Tempur-Pedic, hugging my pillow. Nothing happened. But then one day, he got out of bed and put his pants on. And he said, I'm going to church. And in verse 17, he said, or verse 16, he says, when I thought how to understand all these things, it was too painful for me. By verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God. When he went to the church, when he went to the sanctuary, God met him there. Not out in the field, not wherever else he was, not in his office, but when he went to the sanctuary, God said, you're serious, I'm going to give you something. And what did he get? Well, first of all, he says, I understood their end. Then I understood their end, verse 17, when I went to the sanctuary. So first of all, God said, listen, I want to tell you something, Asap. You're being a sap. Don't you realize they're not keeping any of it. They're not going to have any of it. You're destined for glory, and they're destined for destruction. Verse 20, as a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. And, and I, I think that, that that's a reference to when they awake on the other side. And, and, and boy, that's a scary verse. Because what, what he seems to be saying is that people who have everything in this life but don't have God, when they die and awake on the other side, it's like waking up from a dream. Have you ever woken up from a dream that was so good and your life was so bad? And when you wake up from the dream, it was nothing. It was just your imagination. And there you are in your mess. Isn't that the most awful feeling in the world? And I think conversely, by the way, some people live nightmares in this world. And they'll wake up on the other side and it'll all be just a dream. You know, sometimes people say, you know, such terrible things happen to us. Will God edit our memory in heaven? No, I tend to think they ju you just wake up from a dream. You can have a nightmare and as bad as it is when you wake up and it was just a dream. It doesn't sting anymore. And, and God says here to Asaph, listen, these people are someday going to wake up and they're going to realize they've lost everything. In verse 21, he says, Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Again, God is saying, listen, they're going to lose it all. And in fact, in verse 20, I like that, or verse 19 he says, uh, they are utterly consumed with terrors. In other words, God says, ASAP, you know those folks in the big mansion? They're miserable. That's Johnny Depp and Amber Heard in that man. They're miserable. I have a good time at all. 
They're not enjoying anything. That's what makes it worse. They got everything and they're still miserable. But he says, ASAP, you're continually with me. Verse 23, nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides your, you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Where did he get it? When he went to the house of the Lord. Not before. Sometimes I think God looks at us and we're saying, bless me, give me something. He says, you're not serious about it yet. I'll meet you in the house of the Lord. I'll give you what you need there. Again, I'm speaking to people and I'm back to where I started. These are troubling waters for the American church. We're at halftime. The last generation has had a great falling away. Be, apart from a great revival, there's not a lot of reason to be optimistic about the next generation. But I believe that if enough people in a church care, that it is their priority where they rise up and say, we are going to leave a vibrant church for our children. Now, what they do with it is going to be up to them. But this church is not going to collapse under our watch. We're going to do what it takes. We're, we're, we're going to get in there. We're going to, we're, we're going to maintain unity. I mean, how important is unity? How important is it for us to get in and just not show up, but to work? to use our gifting, to be lively stones in the wall. And again, I, I don't know how many people of my generation care enough. How many of you care enough? You're here on a Tuesday night for revival, so maybe that means you really care. but you're going to have to give it everything. It's going to have to be more important than probably about anything in your life if you're going to succeed at it. But what's going to come of our families? What's going to become of this nation? What's going to become of us if we lose biblical Christianity? Again, we're at halftime. The next generation, the next 30 years, you and I will live to see whether there's a revival or whether America becomes like the church in Europe, dead and insignificant. We're going to live to see it. And I tell you what, it's my heart's cry that when I get to the end of my life, I can say I did everything I could. I did everything I could to leave my children a church. In the greatest falling away, I did everything I could. It didn't happen because of me. 
I tried. I was there. I worked. I gave him my all. I showed up when I didn't feel like showing up. I was an example to my kids. I demonstrated the best that I could that this was important to us, the most important thing in this life, serving God, building his kingdom. You're going to have to do it, man. You're going to have to do it. It's got to be the priority. And tomorrow night, I want to talk to you about the kind of church I think we ought to be building. Stand with me. You'll encourage me to stop. But tonight, doesn't matter what kind of church we build if people aren't interested in building it. The heart's got to be there. Passion's got to be there. And if that's slipping in your life, admit it before the Lord. Admit it before the Lord. If anything ASAP was struggling with, you're struggling with, bring it to the Lord. Thank God you're in the house of the Lord tonight. If you look around and say, everybody's got something that I don't have, thank God you showed up tonight. Maybe the Lord will remind you too that you are destined for glory. You're destined for glory. He's with you always. He'll be with you. You hold on to him, he'll hold on to you. Well, maybe that's a word for somebody here today. Anybody here want to get saved tonight? I think in the church, we, 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 we wait for our song. Don't wait for your song. If you're away from the Lord, get with the Lord. Get in the family. And then start building a church for your children. But start tonight. Doesn't matter what they sing. If you're away from the Lord, you know you need to be with the Lord, you come on. Doesn't matter what they sing. Father, I pray for those who stand here. We thank you for them. Father, I, I have preached here in a house of God that is a citadel in the kingdom. How many times I have felt your spirit work through this room. There have been so many times when I have sat on these pews and felt my soul being fed. Father, I look around this room and there are great, faithful men and women who have spent their lives building this church. And this church has become a light just not for this town, but for other churches throughout America. It's been a place of refreshment. And now, Father, I pray that in the midst of this battle in the land, against great forces in and out of the church. Opposition outside, complacency inside. But there will be men and women who will say, we got to leave a church for our children. We have to. If it means putting aside petty issues, let's put them aside it's important that we stick together and that we stay on the wall working together. It's not a time to fight. It's not a time to strive on minor details. It's a time to link up and to go forward. And it's not a time to be seduced 
by the affairs of the world. Time to all get together. Realize the next few years really do matter. They do matter. Maybe more than they ever have in the life of our nation. Help our hearts, I pray. Renew our strength. Give us a sense, Lord, of accomplishment. Father, th th there weren't many. Weren't many with Gideon. Weren't many during Elijah's day, but they were enough. So Lord, help us to be part of it, Lord. And we ask in this moment, that you would send revival. Lord, I, I beg of you that every pessimistic thing I've said about what the future looks like will not come to pass because you'll send revival. You can have a rebirth in this nation. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray it.